Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to The Connection, a weekly radio program where we share our experiences and expertise with stories of caring, courage, and change right here in Connecticut. Listen to learn about needed resources to improve your well-being and transform your life. Now, here are the hosts of The Connection, Lisa DeMattis-Lapore and Ann Baldwin. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of The Connection. On behalf of myself, Ann Baldwin, and Lisa DeMattis-Lapore, who is CEO of The Connection, it's great to have you along on this Sunday morning. Good morning, Ann. You look so beautiful today with your bright blue eyes and your blue shirt. Thanks. Ready well, to roll. You know, it's funny. When I worked in news, I had a news director once who said, blue is your color, and I want you to wear blue. So blue might be my color, but everything that I owned at that time had to be blue. So I had to wear blue all the time. So I'm surprised I'm not sick of it yet, but thank you for the compliment. Well, you look gorgeous on this beautiful Sunday morning. Yes, so welcome. We have an exci- a very exciting show today. We do. We've got Charles Barber in the house. Charles hey, is the hi. director of the Connection Institute for Innovative Practice. And I'll start with the big question. What is that? Um, what is that? It's... Um, we decided about five years ago that the connection was big enough um, that there were enough of our staff involved in research that we could credibly partner with universities and do our own research, all with the view of improving our practices. So I've been involved in social services for longer than I'd like to say. And I can say in the 90s, um, you could get by with running a program with good stories, you know, good anecdotes, you know, and every program, no matter whether it's good or bad, would have two or three star clients. And you could say, you know, this this, this saved my life. Mm -hmm. And what's happened for, you know, it's a great thing in the last, particularly the last 10 years is to get funding uh, and to do good work, you have to prove that you're doing good work and you have to get the data and you have to track the data. What a concept. What a concept. And it happened in mental health. You know, as you know, the connection is multi-purpose. Um, it happened in mental health about 10 to 15 years ago where mental health became and psychiatry became very research savvy. It's only more recently in criminal justice. Um, so we decided f- for our own client's benefit, first and foremost, to find out what works and what doesn't work, and then create a feedback loop between research and practice, find out what works, and then change our programs accordingly. And also for our funders um, mm-hmm. to uh, show them what was working, what was not working, with a view for them you know, to fund what was working. And it's turned out, lo and behold, when we can prove really good outcomes, and I'm happy to talk about those specifically, uh, we tend to get the grant applications that we apply for. So, Lisa, as CEO, um, I, you know, it's it's kind of like my business, public relations. People want to know, well, what am I going to get for my money? Mm-hmm. Show me the results. Show me the money. 
Um, and some things are harder to measure than other things, but it really is important. And, you know, to this point that Charles brought up, people want to see results. I mean, it's it's got to be difficult, though, to be able to measure that, is it not? No, I think... For us, it isn't actually. I think I feel like we're very much um, ahead of the curve, Charlie. Do you agree in yeah. collecting data and really connecting it to research? And, and we're, you know, right now we're looking um, towards, you know, what are our st- uh, strategic goals, and we're working on this project right now as we move forward at, for a new day at the agency. And you know, research and data is really up there. And really grateful for Charlie. Um, he's brilliant, and um, he also, you know, this is his heart and soul in, in doing this work. And and really bringing the connection and its results, you know, to the forefront, and that's what we need to be doing. I think that we've been doing it for so long. We have so much data we haven't even utilized yet, right, Charlie? So I think we're like hitting the ground running right now with some pretty amazing uh, things that are going to come out. And you know, uh, Charlie, I don't know if you want to talk about the reach up, for example. Where I know where we are going to talk about that today, but so just the recent um, data results that you showed me for our program and. We do that for a variety of reasons. I think the reason why we do that is because the work, first of all, the treatment is working. And and I've said this to you before, Anne, you know, any one of us at the agency can tell you how great the organization is and how great the programs are. But the bottom line is that we have the results to show that, in fact, it is and how it's affecting the state and how clients are not get you know, uh, the recidivism rates are extremely low in our criminal justice, right? and people are not going back into the system and that goes with really all of our service areas the majority you know even with our family support services you know those children that are you know their moms are getting healthy and clean and you know not using anymore those kids are not going back you know they're closing their cases in DCF so that's why we have the research so let me ask you this Charles so what is the association and how do you team up with universities do you utilize students do you utilize their programs how does that work? Well, very. it's very, very specific stuff. So one thing that we did that I, I'm quite positive that no um, social service agency in the country has is we applied through the federal government for what's called an IRB, an Institutional Review Board, which is a mechanism to make sure that human participants in research are protected. And um, so we have our own capacity to review the ethics of the research that we do. That's actually only for our own research. For other entities that do research, which is many Connecticut universities, they have their own IRBs, and so uh, we work with them for their approval. But very specifically, things that we have going on right now, a uh, criminologist at Central Connecticut um, is actually taking his sabbatical uh, this fall. He's going to be in residence in one of our programs, and he's going to be examining an instrument, an assessment instrument for our criminal justice clients, um, basically talking to the clients to see if it's something that's useful and effective for them. And he'll publish articles about that. He actually did that five years ago. He created a uh, new and validated instrument by spending time with our clients and testing and piloting it five years ago. We also work at Wesleyan where I also teach and that is with students and uh, we give uh, with all the proper protections, uh, we give them under the supervision of quantitative researchers in the, there's something called a quantitative analysis center at Wesleyan and they look at our outcomes mainly in our criminal justice programs. We also have an ongoing um, relationship with Yale 
in the psychiatry department and they're piloting um, what's called a citizenship intervention kind of transforming the people we work with, having them change their self-conception from being clients and recipients of care to active citizens. Um, we work with UConn. We've worked with UConn for 15 years. With UConn, we got a five... So these are big universities. This, oh, is, yeah. a, this is a big deal. I could oh, go on huge. and on. We got a $5 million grant with UConn in conjunction with the Department of Children and Families that was 20% a research grant. So let me ask you this, uh, with the research and with the outcomes, have you ever looked at something and said, let's zig instead of zag? Have you, has anything ever gone away or, I mean, what do you do with this stuff? Right. Absolutely. And, and that, that's a great question because that is the whole purpose. The whole purpose is find out what works and what doesn't. And one of the things with data, we actually, as Lisa said, we have, we probably collect too much data. So one of my things that I'm trying to do is simplify and get meaningful data and things that matter and that don't matter. When you, at the end of the day, we were looking at, um, in 1980, Jim, um, Ronald Reagan looked at Jimmy Carter in the 1980 debate and he said, are you, are people better off than they were four years ago? And it was, it was Reagan as the great communicator and that's the core of what we're looking at. Are our clients better off as a result of coming through our programs than they were before? And that comes down to housing, criminal recidivism, substance abuse, all the things that I know this show has been talking about. But to be very specific, we found, for example, that um, those folks in our halfway houses, which are people getting out of prison and they're, they're doing the end of their sentences in our halfway houses for three to six months, the whole purpose is to get jobs for them. Some of them get jobs, some of them don't. You can imagine the obstacles. We found that those clients in our programs, when they got jobs, three years later, they were 10% less likely to be back in trouble with the law. Um, and now we're looking at who was it that got the jobs, how we can work with folks to augment those services. Um, we also found, interestingly enough, um, that um, mental illness, having a mental illness, did not correlate with increased recidivism. Substance abuse did, but not having a mental illness, which is, might be a surprise to some hmm, folks. That is surprising. Yeah. Wow. So that, that, that's pretty amazing. And, you know, you, you speak to from going to the halfway house and, and having employment and how that is, you know, such a step up. Well, of course, you know, you have a purpose, you have a reason you have, you talk about, you know, citizenship. That's really your mission, right? Mm -hmm. That's the key word that that's you in focus our mission on. statement. Yeah. And it's your ultimate goal is uh, for people to feel like they belong. And in order to belong, you know, you want to feel like you're you're doing something you're earning the money that you're spending and you're you're earning the roof over your house i mean i would think if you surveyed and maybe you have people out there do you want everything handed to you or do you want to go out and make it on your own i think the end but there's so many barriers sometimes for people to do that it's frightening yeah and you know when you talk to our clients and a lot of our work is what we call participatory research so it's not you know we do our own research but we also work with these major universities in connecticut but we the, the crux of it is listening to our clients and having them even at times participating in the research so it's not like a top-down model where the experts come in they collect the data and they split mm -hmm. so when you talk to clients we do a lot of focus groups and so on um they're they want to work um in fact we have a we have a miracle worker at this halfway house who's gotten our employment rates in a halfway house up to times 90 percent wow. which is extraordinary 
Um, and I'll tell you one of the things that he does is he he it's very client centered in the sense of he does an employment assessment and it's what do you want to do because we all it's all you know if you put me in the wrong job and I'm not going to do very well you know um, so he starts with there and then it's all about linkages to the community and to the degree that now he's gotten networks of employers who have been very happy with our clients because they tend to show up on time, um, partially with our support. Actually, we run a halfway house in um, southeastern Connecticut, and at one point, apparently, the Dunkin' Donuts down the street was primarily staffed by uh, the residents of our halfway house. So um, in terms of real concrete results, though, I just wanted to get, get back to that. We. Um, we wrote, I and colleagues, we actually had to write the grant four times. We got rejected three times, three years in a row, then we wrote it a fourth time. It was really frustrating because they gave us, this is, this is the Federal Department of Justice, something that um, George Bush did called the Second Chance Act to help returning offenders that got a lot of publicity and was continued, continued under Obama. So we wrote the grant three times and it's a mentoring grant. So. It's to, the whole idea of the grant is to take people that have been through the criminal justice system who are now stable, been clean in various ways for a long time, and to have them impart the lessons of their experience to people that are just out, right? So we wrote it three times. We got written feedback from the feds. Every time I did exactly what they told us to do, we got rejected again. We got really good scores. We got rejected again. <laughs> so finally, we got it the fourth year. The two th couple things happen. One is we attach it to a program where we had our own research showing that the program pre and post from the time that people come in to the time that people get out, we were reducing their criminal behavior by, a, by an actuarial objective measure. So we had our own data. So what happened is we got finally got the grant. We got $200,000 um, a few years ago. We hired two men who had been had one one case very long prison sentences. One he one of them had actually been in solitary for fifteen years. We, uh, I got to ask a question. Yeah, how how did he get out? He his time was finally up, uh, and he was in ver for a very long time. And uh, okay, here's it, the old reporter in me. What did he do? Uh, he committed a murder, um, and he um, served his time, and he got out many, many years later. Um, I'll tell you one thing. Murder is actually a very low—I'm not talking about the, um, the type of crime, but it's actually a very low recidivism crime because most people— that commit murder don't commit another murder. It's mm -hmm. usually a crime of passion. Right. Um, but in any case, um, we have these two men. We hired them, and this their histories are you know literally thirty years in the past, and they're very well vetted. And they did hard time, right? So I would uh, say so. Yes, it's extremely hard time. So they um, we we did a, a randomized clinical trial. So half the people in the halfway house got the usual services. Half of them got the usual services plus these two men providing mentorship. We actually just last week got the final numbers um, because the the grant is over, and we found that the recidivism rates, in other words, the return to prison, were half the rates for those that had the mentors than those who had the usual services in an already pretty good program. And when the, if you dig into the research, what's interesting is um, that for the first four months, 
the graph is the same. In other words, the recidivism rates are the same. After four months, they totally diverge, and that's where we get this separation where it's double for the people that didn't have the peer mentor. And what we're thinking is that these guys who did very hard time and you know went through a whole lot, they really, um, they really talked about compliance, working with parole officers, working AA, NA, Narcotics Anonymous programs, really like compliance and that it's a tough road ahead of you. Mm -hmm. And so they help people get through that honeymoon period where the results were kind of the same and you've got a tough road ahead. And that's the kind of knowledge that Lisa or I could not impart. We may know this you know the research the the clinical services mm -hmm. but we can't do that stuff well lisa and it doesn't it point to you know like myself in recovery peer support you know with the programs has, has always been there um whether it's a phone call or whether it's somebody who's been there done that with years and years of sobriety that can you know give me a reality check after six and a half years exactly. you know and i still need that right so you know that it's effective because you know that you're hearing from somebody you know, why do you think people go into the rooms? Because they know that they're surrounded by people who, who are going through or have been through what they're going through. And that's so important, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I think for any of us have, have even gone through, you know, an illness or, you know, a death, et cetera, you know, relating to someone who's walked that path and really understands and having that support and guidance, it to me is really key. And, um, I think that this has been a really um, eye-opening experience for us at the agency. We want to continue to do this work. But let me just be clear um, that we do work with folks that are consumers, right? So, you know, I'm sure people are, are listening and thinking, oh, that's how do you have someone that, you know, committed that type of a crime and how are they a role model? But obviously, you know, these folks that we're talking about have really gone through their own internal workings of their soul and who they are um, and have really made significant changes in their life to be, in fact, a role model to other people. And they're, what they gave, have given back is to show that they're ready to be citizens again in Connecticut and, you know, are, are really changed their lives and are making an, an effective uh, impact on those that need help. So I think that, you know, that's great. And we also see that with the clients that have left and are, you know, citizens in the community that come back to the program in which they stayed and that they're working with our current clients and they're giving, a, back. giving back and an amazing role model. I think just when you think, you know, you want to give up, you, you know, you talk to someone who's walked, walked that path that you have and they give you that little extra something and they help you got you know lead the way and I think that that's really effective so how do you convince employers and people to you know give these folks a second chance right and the grant that we got the federal grant that I talked about was called the second chance act right. it's all about giving people second chances um, when I've been involved in employment around people, not just for people with criminal offenses, but people that have, you know, 10 years missing in their, you know, resume and, and whatnot, the main uh, policy is honesty. And just to explain uh, exactly, you know, maybe not every detail, but, um, you know, that typically in life is uh, a good strategy. Mm -hmm. uh, but we found, I, I, I worked with an excellent employment specialist who worked in a halfway house and she did a couple things that were interesting the main one was um be honest about your your history you know put even put it up front and almost in a way say i learned from it this is what 
uh, in a concrete way, this is how I am now, you know, al almost talk about what you've, you know, try and turn it in, into a positive in, in, in an honest and straightforward way. The other thing that she did and is uh, she said, write thank you notes. Um, and handwritten, handwritten, thank you. Th or can you imagine? Maybe not handwritten anymore. No, I'm not I think sure. they should be handwritten. I think that's a dying thing. It it's, is right. I love it when I get a little handwritten thank you note. Right, and then the other thing that she would do, and I actually saw her do this, is when people went out the door to go. You know, a lot of times it is fast food or, or restaurant jobs. She would actually do a role play interview with yes. people mm -hmm. the moment they were going out the mm -hmm. door. And um, so it was fresh in their heads. And she'd ask those hard questions, the felony question and mm -hmm. stuff like that. So um, our guy in New Haven at this large halfway house has been enormously successful. And when we haven't had excellent employment specialists, that employment rate goes way, way down. Mm -hmm. um, so it's all about the networking um, and the the straightforwardness. And um, I think it's the knowledge, right, that these people pass along because it's an intimidating process. Whether you've been incarcerated or not, you know, going out for a job application or job interview can be very intimidating to the average person, right? So to have those tools and that preparation and that role playing and looking the part and playing the part. And I got to go back to this guy working at my house, man. He's he's there early. He's works late. I mean, just his compassion and commitment is like none other. And, you know, I, I tell my folks all the time when people come in here for an interview, I say, you know what I want? I want people's skills and common sense, you know, and that's what I'm looking for. I I think it's great that you went to this university. I really don't care about your jobs. I want to know about your extracurricular activities. And are you a people person? I mean, do you get it? Right. And we look for people like when we were doing uh, interviews for this peer mentor program, we look for people, same thing. We look for honesty and honest reckoning as to what they've done and a sense um, the, uh, that they've moved beyond that, that they've taken ownership of what they've done. Um, and a lot of it is when they were very young and there were all kinds of, you know, difficult mm -hmm. circumstances. A lot of, most of it, about half of the crimes in the United States are committed when people are actually high uh, and, and drunk. It's, it's, so we think of, uh, we, we know intuitively the relationship between, um, you know, substance abuse and criminal, you know, that it's to get the money for drugs, but actually about half of the crimes are actually committed when people are high and drunk. So, well, you know, and that's another reason why organizations like The Connection are so important because one thing leads to another, leads to another. So you almost need this umbrella over you, right? Because, and everybody's different. Everybody's individualized. It's not a cookie cutter approach. So to your point, Charles, someone might, it might have been because of a substance abuse problem, which then needs to be addressed. It might be because of a mental health issue, which then, did you see how I said mental health? I'm impressed. Mental health issue, that which then seems to, needs to be addressed. So it's like anything else in life. It's a continuum of care. You know, you don't just go into a nursing home at the end. You start in assisted living and you graduate yourself through the process, which is great. And from a taxpayer perspective, this um, this grant that we um, were wrapping up, um, we just found the data. We save the taxpayers of the United States a, a lot of money with this reduced recidivism. So uh, it's about the Department of Correction says that it's about sixty grand a year to have someone in prison. The people in this program is particularly in this halfway house program particularly needy. 
with medical psychiatric needs. So I would say conservatively $100,000 to keep them incarcerated for a year. Um, when we halved the recidivism rate for the this $200,000 grant, we haven't calculated the dollar figures, but I can tell you it's well over a million dollars. Um, it's probably that's probably extremely conservative. So, from a dollars and cents points of view, we took people that had done had difficulties. We've turning them, or they're turning themselves, I should say, into productive citizens, and they are saving. They're promoting public safety. Um, which is you know kind of a weird concept in a way someone who's been there is promoting public safety um, but what we found and it's not just us um, is that a lot of our clients are more likely we can the clinical services are critical um, but in terms of reaching the kind of hard sometimes hard to reach people they often hear it much better from someone who uh, has been down that road um, one of these guys went to uh, the supermarket with one of the people that um, had just gotten out of prison and in the commissary in prison there's like two types of cookies right so they're in stop and shop and there's like 300 times kinds of cookies and he actually couldn't handle it like mentally it yeah. was like absolutely overwhelming. overwhelming yeah and so he was with one of our mentors he because he took him shopping and he's like I same thing happened to me wow if I would have been there I would have said Oreo double stuff. That's the only thing you need to know. Just one choice. Just one choice. Okay. Now they got triple stuff, but I wouldn't recommend it. Yeah, too much. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so Charles Barber, this was an interesting conversation and we're going to continue to speak with you about other programs and other research as well, but you are the director of the Connection Institute for Innovative Practice. So for those folks out there saying that, you know, money's just being thrown at this problem and we don't even know if it works, you know that it works and you're doing the research and you've got the numbers. So we want to also encourage people to go to the website as well if you want more information on any of the Connection programs. And that is The Connection Inc. All one word, theconnectioninc.org. Lisa DeMattis Lapori, it's always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. I'm so grateful um, for this program and for Charlie um, Barber to be here today to talk about the great work that he's doing at The Connection and how I just want folks to know how grateful I am to have this amazing, brilliant staff on board um, to do this really hard work. So thank you, Charlie, for being here. And thank you, Anne. Yes, it's, it's always fun. Today. And you know, Charlie, you know, continued success. Thank you. And, you know, grant writing is challenging. You know, it's everybody, you're looking for anything you can do to fund programs at work because I'll say this, I'll editorialize a little bit because here in the state of Connecticut, we all know what the situation is, you know, the legislative session and special session and, you know, programs are being cut. And when programs are cut, the people don't get the services that they need. And we all pay the price, mm -hmm. whether you're in one of these programs or not, or whether you're suffering from, you know, addiction or, or mental health issues. I mean, we are all part of the same society. So if these people don't get the services that they need, it impacts all of our lives, folks. So that's what we need to remember. But this has been a great conversation, and I want to thank you for being here. Thank you. And thanks to all of you for listening to this edition of The Connection right here on WTIC News Talk 1080.
T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.